or welcome back. If you're listening to this episode on the heels of Thanksgiving 2022 at your home, maybe with a turkey sandwich in hand or with one of the last slices of pumpkin pie adorned with just a bit of Cool Whip scraped from the tub, you may wonder why your host and narrator, Marty Young, that would be me, took so long in dropping this episode 28 of the Primrose Chronicles, the one i chosen to call Turkey Day Leftovers. I've been asking myself the same thing. I've had pages of thoughts and resources and memories to draw from to compile a suitable reminiscence. I just could never climb into Peabody and Sherman's Wayback Machine, a la Rocky and Bullwinkle, for a long enough look back. Perhaps this time at our dining room table, almost a week removed from the actual 2022 celebration, will be the ticket. You, my faithful listener, will have to decide. At any rate, it's going to be my best effort. Only now, well into the week following, do I feel sufficiently prepared to be your guide into Thanksgivings of the 50s and 60s as pulled from the treasure trove that is my sometimes fertile, other times fallow memory bank. I really haven't wanted to avoid it. My memories of the last Thursday in November over the years and the events leading up to it annually during those decades were not filled with ill memories. Try as I might, since I've heard the horror stories of many family gatherings from folks with whom I've shared that holiday since then, I really don't have any memories of Thanksgiving with any of the personal holiday stressors like travel or weather or family arguments or politics. Nor did the chaos wrought by having several broods of extended family children trying to discover or establish their respective pecking order in new surroundings much too small to accommodate such a gaggle lead to an embarrassment or any family division. Just suffice it to say, I have experienced the worst case of writer's block in composing an episode of the Primrose Chronicles since I began this project over seven months ago. Previously, I've been applauded as to how much I remember of my early years, even causing one follower to note that I must have a highly developed hippocampus to recall such detail-specific long-term memories. I swear, that's the way she phrased it. I don't know about that. I only know that I've never been to the sub-Saharan Africa where those river horses are free-range. I never asked for one for Christmas. And I only know that for the last couple of weeks, memories of a hippo have not been abundance in my thinking. So I'm trying again. Likely setting a low bar for entertainment in the process, but here goes. And since you've chosen to listen in, I'm really hoping for the best. As a kid... Thanksgiving was the fall undercard to the big winter event of Christmas. It started on the school front. Seemingly regardless of grade level, plans began the days after Halloween to bring the story of the Pilgrims and the Indians front and center in November history units. William Bradford, Miles Standish, and Squanto became familiar names. In some instances, There were dramatic compositions, complete with dialogue crafted by a teacher's finest skills as an amateur playwright, and butcher paper costumes created from the aged pattern shared by classroom veterans passed down to their fresh, young education cohorts, all to ensure that every child, 
received a fresh reminder of a sanitized recounting of that first feast with pilgrims and the Wampanoag tribe. I remember white bonnets and black broad-rimmed hats with bands adorned with yellow paper buckles. Guy's shoulders were covered with additional sheets of black bulletin board backing, complete with head holes and pleats. The girls had a simpler black collar with a white paper lace, all to suggest the early settler host's finest dining attire at that first community meal. For the Native American guests, again by benefit of the trusty assortment of colored rolls of paper, narrow brown headbands, one per child regardless of gender, a narrow long oval stapled to each band recreating a feather. In preparation for the virtual reenactment, vests were drawn and cut out of brown parcel paper, this time with armholes and fringes cut along the bottom of the waist to depict animal hides. With costumes completed, acting parts were assigned. The depiction was often a two-classroom effort, with one class playing the role of Native American guests and the other class the settler hosts. On the day of the proceedings, Usually just before the holiday break, a meal, replacing lunch in the cafeteria, was prepared, as always by the long-suffering room mothers and those that had unfortunately answered their phones when they were called. It was spread before costumed and very picky participants. The pleasantries of young pilgrims welcomed their equally juvenile first American guests, combining their bountiful harvest and hunt at long tables of butcher paper on the hallway floors. It was time to eat, but not before being guided by a few memorized lines by lead actors from the history tale, then a prayer of gratefulness said over the entire meal. Yes, there was a time that took place in school without recrimination. In fact, I learned my first mealtime prayers in the sack lunch dining room at School 91, and I took them home for family recitation at meals. I only recall one incident worth mentioning from the hours between the Thanksgiving lunch and school's dismissal for the holiday, and it's memorable even up until now. It would be the year in fourth or fifth grade that we had a turkey piñata that we took turns breaking open with a long stick to get to the candy and prizes inside. In hindsight, that was probably a good idea. It was certainly preferable to butchering a live bird or wringing its neck and plucking it, even if that would have been more historically accurate. Anyway, I remember coming home that year with pockets full of candy corn and a chocolate turkey. Not quite a Halloween haul, but those morsels were long past, so I was grateful. And that was the purpose of the holiday anyway, wasn't it? We got to keep our costumes and take them home for family reenactments, they said. Mine made it to the dumpster behind Norwaldo Drug. I did not want to model it for family members that I only saw once a year anyway. It was now time to begin the four-day weekend front-loaded with that big day. Now, preparation for Turkey Day had begun long before the actual event. The level of prep, depending on whether... Family was coming to our little abode on Primrose or if we were heading for the grandparents. That usually didn't start elsewhere until around noon, but it didn't mean mom could sleep in. 
Even though there was no turkey to baste and bake for a few years at 4425, and we'll talk more about that extravaganza in a bit, the early years, even before Primrose, we, meaning mom, supplied the mashed potatoes, usually the rolls and one of the pies, all before we climbed into the family car for not one, but a couple of meals on that day. Usually dad's parents, my granny and grandpa, Mildred and George Young got first dibs on us because the Youngs had more local family units and thus more moving parts they had to pull together for a celebration. They had what was called a row house, I guess. I remember two different locations, one on Ruckel, the other on Kenwood, but very much the same. I know that doesn't matter to most of you, but I'm impressed I can still remember the streets. I guess it goes with that highly developed hippo whatever. Those were the big gatherings. Aunt Dorothy and Uncle Jim, Dad's oldest sister and her husband, with their daughters, Betty Ann and Sue. Usually there was Uncle George and Aunt Dee with their brood. And I must say, at this point, my hippo fails me in recalling their kids. If any of you are listening in, please contact me with names and birth order. I really am very sorry and would love to connect. There was also my Aunt Barb Pedlow and her husband, who shall not be named. The reason is briefly referred to in episode 11 in tribute to my dad. And my cousins, Steve, Judy, and Bruce. Again, I think those names are right. Please correct if not. There was also Aunt Tamer, who was Granny's sister who lived with them until she passed. But together, this formed the conclave that would be the young family Thanksgiving. Upon arrival after a brief trip south, we kids were relegated to outside, unless still in a crib or a stroller. There, we played hide-and-seek, green light, red light, and took turns on the big swing down by the garage. Each home had a similar backyard with stoop and garage and narrow driveway and swing. Such were the row houses on Indy's near north side. Yes, just like the ones two chicks and a hammer are restoring on old bones. There, I've outed myself as a frequent but reluctant HDTV and Magnolia Network viewer. Anyway, while we played and the men discussed world and national affairs in the living room, the ladies, even with toddlers and their conveyances underfoot, staked out spots around the kitchen to peel and mash, mix and stir, baste and eventually carve the integral parts of the meal that would be consumed in far less time than it took to compile. It was a team effort as long as each knew their place and preparation boundaries were not overstepped. When it was time, kids were called to eat at card tables hastily assembled around the living room. Chairs had been brought by various families from various parts of their own homes, folding if possible, to fit in trunks and spaces around foodstuffs and sometimes on top of kids. Plates were prepared for each child, each containing only items that that singular child would consume. Melmac plates for the younger set, while the best family china for the adults was placed around the large dining room table. Once the kids were seated, drinks poured, rolls buttered, and the food where necessary cut. Adults gathered at the table between the kitchen and the converted living room. It was a table for eight, now accommodating 12 or so chairs for this singular get-together. Many families at 
Other holiday gatherings got their food buffet-style from serving stations in the kitchen. The greater young clan had all the elements of a full holiday meal on the table within reach or passing to all. Granny and her team of daughters and daughters-in-law kept eyes on the food levels and kept them full, hastening to the pots on the stove or the trays in the warm oven or just bowls on the prep counters. I'm not sure how much they actually got to eat and whether it was still hot when they did, but no one else sure went hungry. I must sadly admit I don't remember any prayers of thanks offered formally, but that before the meal was over, each father, mother, and child was asked to share what they were grateful for. Those ran the gamut based on age and preparation going into the event. From pets to warm beds to freedom to family, the atmosphere was solemn usually until some wisecracking older child would submit their offering. I think I said toilet paper one year. I can't recall anything else specific, but I do remember when my older cousin, it was either Betty Ann or Sue, said that they were thankful for Elvis. And I really think they meant it. Once heaping plates soon displayed only crumbs and morsels, so it was now time to clear them. Kids who could carry their plates to the kitchen counter in the sink for scraping, were reminded by their respective mothers, keep your fork, there's still pie. So the forks went back to the card table play settings as we all ran out for another round of another group game, but this time not quite so boisterous. We were stuffed. Inside, it was family time for the grown-ups, usually with Granny and Grandpa Young and Aunt Tamer holding court and recalling the years back down in Brazil, Indiana. Today, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for those stories. I know so little about my paternal grandparents. As a result, I cannot offer very much in a way of description for those times, only that we left there promising to do more together as a full family in the months ahead, and then a year later lamenting the fact that it hadn't happened when we got back together. Eventually, those times ceased to take place. Dad. Corky, to his siblings and his parents, was the youngest, and I don't remember when, but I know it was early on that Aunt Tamer, then Granny, and finally Grandpa Young all passed. There was no generational home to gather in. Uncle George died at a young age as well, and Aunt Dee and the kids lived on the far other side of town. Aunt Barbara moved to San Diego and came back for a while, then I think moved to Florida with her kids. The extended young family of Brazil, Indiana, became memories. Now, Mom's parents, Grandpa Grant and Grandma Diddy, they were much closer to the family of their daughter, Dorothy. She, and by extension, my dad and us kids, were much more frequently visited by the Smiths, to the point of regularly showing up weekly, as well as for most special events like birthday parties. But as long as Grandma Diddy was healthy, and they lived in a home, not an apartment, Thanksgiving dinner would be the evening gathering that same day as the earlier young festivities. We'd break camp at the Young's after the table was cleared, dishes washed, and leftovers divided up. And then, 
Depending on the ages of the kids in our family that year, we might head home for a time of napping, everyone but mom, but certainly later load the car with fresh trays of vittles and head out again. This was the idea for a few years, but after the realization that no one was really hungry for a second feast, mom's folks agreed that a Friday or a Saturday celebration made more sense. So when other families had relatives heading to all parts of the Midwest, we were settling in for another day of feasting. The numbers were fewer, the activities less planned and chaotic, the attire more casual, but enjoyed and remembered nonetheless. Eventually, Grandma Denty suffered a heart attack and was on oxygen the rest of her life. She was frail, and the two of them moved to a small apartment where we often made short visits. But it was in those days that Mom became the mistress of the feast, and our home became the place for our maternal grandparents to join us for the fall banquet. Because of her mother's health, Mom felt that she needed to do it all. And that meant the preparation of offerings from potatoes, mashed and sweet, through pies, pumpkin and pecan, and of course stuffing, homemade rolls, and the turkey. Not only did she do it all, probably with some help from Dad and at least Nancy and limitedly by me as I paced between kitchen and living room, checking on the Macy's parade and then whoever the Detroit Lions were losing to, she did it very well. I loved waking up those mornings or returning from my paper route as I got older to be greeted by the mixture of smells, turkey just beginning to roast, the still lingering aroma of pies cooked the days before, and the dough for dinner rolls rising in a towel-covered container setting on the floor furnace register. I always marveled how a small lump, not even big enough to make more than a half a dozen rolls, would grow to a size that almost exceeded the bowl in which it had been placed, all thanks to the amazing fungus called yeast. There was always plenty. Her preparation of everything did not mean that we were not called to participate. At some point, we were trusted to greater and greater sous chef rolls. Yes, I watched the Food Channel. But more often, we were table setters and certainly bussers of the tables and washers of dishes and silverware and serving trays and the like before the day concluded. The numbers were fewer. The table was smaller. But again, it was rich with a sense of love and family. For me, the highlight of the Smith-Young gathering came after everything was cleared and often before the dessert selections. I mentioned Mom was the only child of Grant and Denny that lived in town, but they did have a special son, and Mom had a special brother who lived in Denver, and that would be my Uncle Bill and his wife, Aunt Barbara. He had served in the Army in Germany after the war. He met and married Aunt Barbara, who was from Golden, Colorado, and they settled in that region. I could talk about them, my favorite aunt and uncle, for an extended time but I want to stay on topic now that I've gotten this tale rolling. Maybe a later episode dedicated to the characters of my family will find them included. I mentioned them, though, because it was holidays like this one and Christmas that my family made use of the luxury of a long-distance phone call. Hard to believe. 
in this day of FaceTime and Zoom calls and the ability to connect with folks in time zones around the world from a device you carry on your person, that homes beyond your city limits could only be connected either by snail mail, with postage ranging from three to five cents for handwritten epistles, taking usually four to seven days to arrive, or by landlines, with the assistance of a third party. In other words, the long-distance telephone call. That activity evolved during these decades, but it sticks in my mind as a wonderful staple of family connectedness and the ends to which we would go to bring absent family members into our gatherings. Grandpa Grant and Grandma Denny, along with their daughter Dot, made certain that the Indy Smith version of Thanksgiving always included a conversation with the Colorado Smiths, even at an extended cost. For the sake of recollection by you baby boomers who follow this podcast and the complete unawareness of an audience who came along later but still listen in, let me briefly share what had to happen for a long-distance call to take place. I guess, first, those paying the monthly phone bill had to decide if the added expense could be covered in that month's utility bills. The going rate was $3.50 for the first three minutes and $1 a minute for each minute thereafter. Then it had to be determined how long the call could transpire. And finally, in that time frame, who would talk and for how long? In the case of the young Smith clan, we would wait until after 5 p.m., lowering the rate to evening costs, contact an operator, give her the name and the phone number of the party we wanted to contact, that would be Bill Smith in Denver, Colorado, and then give her our phone number, Clifford 55696, for billing purposes. In many cases, that operator would then contact other operators across the U.S., from Indiana, across Illinois, Missouri, Kansas, and then into Colorado when a final operator would call the Smith household herself. If there was a high volume of phone traffic, the caller, in this case the family gathered on Primrose, might be advised to call back because it could not complete the call as dialed. In the earliest years, the operator would call back when the call could finally be completed. Now, if the Colorado Smiths were placing the call, the young Smith recipients would also need to stand by the phone and wait for the proper combination of long rings and shorts since we were on a party line with other neighbors before we picked it up. Even when we recognized our ring schedule and picked up, we could not begin our conversation until the operator confirmed that the party reach was indeed the party sought by the ones placing the call. This was the way it happened if the call was placed person-to-person. A station-to-station call allowed anyone answering to receive the call. Now, this was a cheaper option and usually worked well when families called each other. In fact, seldom did we call person-to-person, usually station-to-station or home-to-home, and thus, whoever picked up got to talk first. In any case, we were on the clock. Time was money. At certain increments, the operator would interject an update of time used, and families could wrap up the call or decide to add another minute. It was hard for Mom and her folks to break off the call once they got to talk to Uncle Bill. Time flew by too quickly, and so many had so much to relay. 
That really improved as Dad jerry-rigged a second extension phone and then a third in our house. Our first line was in the living room, but that was later run along the basement rafters, rising onto the kitchen wall next to the sink. And then there was the splice into Mom and Dad's room, and later, a third into the basement. You can only imagine the chaos of conversation. Two or three listening in on the kitchen phone, another one or two on the basement desk, and maybe even on the bedroom. Goodbyes were too soon, exchanged with a promise to write soon with more details, and then the call ended. Only then did my grandparents begin talking about heading home. More often than not, They decided to stay for dessert or more dessert if that hadn't happened before the first call. Even if it had been served, they were probably up to a quick game of canasta, oftentimes operating from a running score accumulated from earlier visits. If that game of cards ensued, it probably would mean the bedtimes of the younger youngs might be delayed and the TV time for the older youngs might be extended. It indeed had been a good day. It also meant double the smoke cloud coming from the kitchen. Mom and Dad's Winston's, Grandpa Grant's Salem, Grandma Denty on oxygen but enjoying an old gold or two. Laughter abounded. An occasional soft expletive was emitted at the way a round was going, but it was obvious a good time was being had by all. Eventually, and reluctantly, the Elder Smiths headed for home. Thanksgiving was over for another year, but each one still provides smells and sounds and sights and tastes that resonate with me whenever they come into my awareness, even today, and cause me to realize there was a lot more to Thanksgiving than just eating. It was a glorious day to eat, and even in its chaos and sometimes unplanned activities, it was still a perfect day. Now that I've actually spent some time unpacking fond childhood memories. I think what kept me from posting this episode actually helped me to realize Thanksgiving might be my favorite holiday as a baby boomer adult. I like how it's unassuming and no frills. Walmart's tried, but there still is not a lot of showy house decorations. No costumes, tinsel, twinkly lights, or wrapping paper. Regardless of the size of the gathering, whether Thanksgiving with family or Friendsgiving with folks who became family in absentia, it can put a nice luster on a time of year that really can have some rough edges. Yes, it can be a difficult time of year for all sorts of reasons, some of them in our short-term memory, others in the hypocamus pen of long-term recollections. I've decided as a result of this belated chronicle chapter to embrace all that I am thankful for, and I want to encourage you to do the same, however belatedly. With this installment, we turn the calendar to the days of December when we, in the words of Ralphie of A Christmas Story, prepare for our yearly bacchanalia of peace on earth and goodwill to men. I look forward to leading that sleigh ride down the snow-covered way that is Primrose Lane, er, Primrose Chronicles. Until the next time, I really hope that that Sears Wish Book and Penny's Christmas Toy Catalog aren't already too dog-eared. I haven't had a chance to go through them myself yet. Blessings.